Well, as Pastor Matt said, over the past few years, I've been the director of what's called Family Policy Alliance of New Jersey. So with that, I ran for office last year, and I talked to people about what's going on in our country. And one thing I'd always say to them is that the family is under attack in our culture, that there are people who want to dismantle the family. And when I said that, a lot of individuals didn't know what I actually meant by the word dismantle the family or what was going on with the family unit. So I put together a conference that's really three hours long called Defending the Biblical Family. Defending the Biblical Family. And it's really three sessions. There is the biblical family that's defined by scripture. There's the biblical family that's being dismantled by culture. And there's the biblical family being disrupted by government. It's a three hour conference and I got it down to two and a half hours for tonight. No, I'm just joking, <laughs> just joking. About 45, 50 minutes. I'm here every Wednesday night in the back row, 8 o'clock. If we need five minutes more, you never tell Pastor Joe no. So 8 o'clock, 8.05, it's all under control. We'll get out of here. So, But that's the content tonight about defending the biblical family. So we know what the family unit is in the eyes of God, so we can have firm and strong biblical convictions on the family unit and be more aware and alert of what's going on in the culture and the government to really dismantle and disrupt the family unit as defined and described by God. So let's pray this evening and we'll get into the presentation here. So Father in heaven, we come to you in your son Jesus' name. Father, we worship you and we thank you, Lord, for every opportunity that we have to gather together to hear the teaching and the preaching of your word. We thank you that you are the spirit of truth. And we pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would minister this truth to our hearts that we would have ears tonight to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches to equip us for what is yet to come. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So the family unit defined by Scripture. I know today in our world, there's many, many definitions of how the family unit is supposed to be. But there is a biblical, binary, biological family that was created out of the mind of God. And we'll see tonight this family unit as described and defined by God is the first institution God ever made. It's a divine institution and it's described as a very, very good institution. So see, before there was Israel, before there was the church, before there was any human government, there was the family. It wasn't created by universities or by academics. It wasn't created by governments or by laws. It wasn't even created by cultures or nations. It was created out of the mind of God as recorded for us in the book of Genesis. And we're gonna turn to this evening to find out how does God define the family unit? Because our biblical convictions about the family, it's not rooted just in like the laws of Moses in the book of Leviticus how God gave them laws for the nation of Israel. It preceded all of that. It's in the book of Genesis. So we can have a very strong foundation of what we believe and why we believe it out of the creative order of God in the book of Genesis. So let's go tonight to this next slide. If you see in the book of Genesis, of course, chapter one, God created the six days of creation and then in chapter two, something very unique happens. And we'll look at the scripture in a moment. This is the only time in creation that God looks upon what he has made. And he says, something is not good. 
Something is not good. See, this is before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, before they disobeyed God, before they were cast out of the garden. When this perfect world that God was making in the first chapter of Genesis, he's going through the whole thing, day one, day two, day three, and God declared it, it was, and the Bible says, and it was good. God declared it, it was, and the Bible said it was good. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. We get to day six. God is making man. And all of a sudden, God looks down on creation, which is not fallen, no evil, no suffering, no sin. And God says something is not good because man is alone. Man is alone. We need to make man a partner to complement him and to work together in this journey. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So here again in the book of Genesis, the book of creation, God is looking at what he made. He's seeing Adam, and we're reading here that God realized that it is not good that man should be alone. So Adam looks at all the animals, and thank God, there is still something not good yet. And so God said, I need to make a female to complement and partner with this male to journey together in this life in creation that I have made. And so we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the few verses down, this is how God defined and described the institution of marriage. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there we see in this picture how God defined and described the biblical family. A male and a female, a dad and a mom, a father and a mother, journeying together, raising their kids to have dominion over all the earth. And this family unit, this family structure, again, it didn't come from Europe. It didn't come from Western civilization. It wasn't man-made. It was God-breathed in the book of Genesis. It came from the words of the, Moses, of the prophet Moses as he wrote Genesis, recording the historical narrative how God made the heavens and the earth. And so when man tries to manipulate or twist or turn or change what God has declared to be so, we realize how fallen man has become. For this is how God has described marriage. And we see in day one, day two, day three, it was good. It was good. It was good. But all of a sudden, when he gets to day six and he makes uh, the female with the male to be together in marriage, he doesn't say it was good. He doesn't say it was good. In Genesis 1.31, he says, and it was very good. And it was very good. This is the only part in all of creation that God looked back at what he made and he said, now that, that was very good. The marriage institution of a male and a female. Everything else he made, day one, two, three, four, five, it was good, it was good, it was good. 
But when he made the male and female divine institution of marriage and family, God said, now that, my friend, that is very good. That is very good, which is Genesis 1, 31. Think about it. When he made the woman, he broke the mold. He said, I'm done. It is good. Really, ladies, at the end of the day, he said, man, I can't get any better than woman. He said, man, this is a masterpiece right here. I've made woman. That's right. And Adam said, yeah, you made, whoa, man. Make no more, God. But in Genesis 131, it says at the end of of day six, when God made male and female, the only time in all creation, it says, and it was very good. It was very good. And there, my friend, lies the problem. And it was very good. Because today, society, they have realized that through their social sciences, through their research, their academics, and all their learning and knowledge, they have realized something, we'll see later on tonight, that the biblical family, as created out of the mind of God, is so good, and it works so well, that society prospers and flourishes so much under the biblical family, that it's not fair. That it's not fair. So they think, and we'll see tonight, that if everyone can't be raised in the family unit the way God defined it to be, then let's destroy the family unit and have community parenting and state oversight of children. Because the biblical family, since it's very good and not everyone experiences that very good institution, then it's not fair to everybody else. So instead of thinking as a society, what can we do to get more children into intact, healthy families They're saying more and more, what can we do to dismantle the family to level the playing field? That's how troubling this debate has become. Now, me, myself, I was raised by a single mom. So whether you're raising your children as a single parent, whether you're raised by a single mom, we're not talking about individual people here. We're talking about generalities. At the end of the day, the family unit does so well that people want to dismantle it. Because marriage does bring good in society in many ways. It promotes social stability economic well-being, education and emotional benefits to children, transmitting cultural and moral values to the next generation, and a stable unit for children to have security. That's the benefits of marriage. So again, how did God define marriage? Well, here's some some categories or, or guardrails for us. He said there should be two. The two shall become one flesh. He says it should be unrelated adults. You leave your father and your mother. You can't leave your father and your mother if you're eight years old. You have to be an adult at some level. You don't leave your father and mother if you're marrying your your sister. So you're unrelated. The opposite sex created male and female and a lifelong covenant. God is joined together. Let not man separate. That's God's definition and description of the biblical family. The family unit that God said was very good, very good. But that's how God described the family unit in the book of Genesis. Well, what about Jesus? How did Jesus define marriage and family? Now, of course, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. So we would think, and we will see, that he would repeat and reflect what the book of Genesis has said about the institution, 
the first institution, the divine institution of marriage and family. But before we go there, I do hear some people saying sometimes, well, Jesus never spoke about this, maybe a certain relationship or a certain um, sexual identity. So therefore, if he never spoke about it, I'm not going to speak about it. But if that's the case, then Jesus never spoke about slavery either. So you have no position on slavery? He never spoke about human trafficking. You have no position on human trafficking because Jesus didn't say something? Furthermore, do you believe that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved? I believe that. But Jesus didn't say that. That was the Apostle Paul. Do you believe that if you confess with, uh, that, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? I believe that. Jesus didn't say that. That was the Apostle Paul. Or what about we are saved by grace through faith, not of our works, lest we should boast. It is the gift of God. Jesus didn't say that. It was the Apostle Paul. So if pastors only preach what Jesus said, we would never know the grace of God on the salvation, what happened on the cross that day Amen. that came through the writings of Paul. Now, all of it is God breathed through the Holy Spirit. But if we're going to pick and choose only what Jesus said in the scriptures, our preaching will be very empty and, and limited on a host of issues. We need to take all of scripture into account. Furthermore, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Back then, the first century, the Jewish people in that generation, he was sent to them to declare truth. And they already knew from the book of Genesis, what was God's definition and description of marriage and family? That wasn't a question in their mind. He dealt with hypocrisy and inconsistency and, and, and religiosity and the matter of the laws of Moses. But they knew what God meant by the family unit. Now, the apostle Paul, he was sent to the Roman Empire and they needed teaching on biblical sexuality. So we'll see a lot of teaching in the, in the New Testament about the family unit from the writings of Paul. But with that being said, they did ask Jesus when they approached him about marriage, what does he believe about it? So Matthew 19, it says this, and the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, this is testing Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus repeated the book of Genesis. He repeated the book of Genesis. He didn't go back to the laws of Moses or to the book of Leviticus where there was regulations about divorce and remarriage, everything in the law of Moses, because God knew that in the fallen earth that we're going to have broken relationships and God was giving Moses ways to regulate that for Israel. But he said, what did God want from the beginning? How did God define and describe and create the family out of his own mind? We have to go to Genesis because that's the family unit God made. Those are the the components of the family that God wants society to flourish with. That's how Jesus defined marriage. So again, kind of similar to the other picture, this is how Jesus defined marriage. Two shall become one flesh. He just said that. Unrelated adults, 
leaving the father and mother. Jesus just said that. The opposite sex, created male and female. Jesus just said that. In a lifelong covenant, God has joined together. Let not man separate. So again, this very clear definitions of the family unit known as the biblical family, that comes from the inspiration of scripture recorded in the book of Genesis, repeated in the gospels through the teachings of Jesus, and therefore they still remain true today. Man can't change it. Man can't redefine it. Man can't structure society without it because the word of God does not fail. This is how God intended the world to function. So we know how God has declared it. We know how Jesus has described it. But how does the world, what's the world's definition of marriage and family? The world's definition of marriage and family. Let's go to Webster Dictionary. Let's go to a respected, well-established dictionary. March 2022. This is copy and paste out of the Webster Dictionary. The definition of the word marriage, or more accurately, the understanding of what the institution of marriage properly consists of, continues to be highly controversial. Hmm. This is not an issue to be resolved by dictionaries. Hold on. A definition is not an issue to be resolved by a dictionary? That's what they're saying. They're now so confused... It's so complicated that even the dictionary says, listen, we can't answer that question anymore. <laughs> Ultimately, the controversy involves cultural traditions, religious beliefs, legal rulings and ideas about fairness and basic human rights. Furthermore, the principal point of dispute has to do with marriage between two people of the same sex, often referred to as same-sex marriage or gay marriage. Same-sex marriages are now recognized by law in a growing number of countries and were legally validated throughout the U.S. by the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. In many other parts of the world, marriage continues to be allowed only between men and women. Let's be more clear here. It's not in many parts of the world it's in the majority of the world or most parts of the world. Marriage is still only allowed between a man and a woman. Amen. Actually, here are the facts. Only 30 nations out of 195 have legalized same-sex marriage. In other words, most of the world still holds the traditional, mainstream, historical, and global view of marriage and family. Amen. And when someone says to you, well, you, you know, you can't force your, your Christian religion or beliefs of marriage on everyone else. Well, first of all, no one's forcing anything. But second of all, these nations, the 165 that have not legalized same-sex marriage, the majority of those nations are not Christian. They're not Christian. So the definition of marriage isn't a Christian definition. It's not a Christian religion. Remember, it superseded nations and cultures and ethnicities and universities. It, it superseded all of that. It came from the mind of God as a universal global principle of all creation. It is his creative order out of the mind of God. See, we are not the fringe. We are simply the faithful. 
the faithful. Because 85% of nations still agree with the biblical and traditional view of marriage. And in most situations, in most countries, where you see Christianity declining, when you see people no longer attending church, and you see the, the faith of Christ kind of uh, declining in society, that's where you'll see more and more marriage being redefined. Because it really only is taking place in Western civilization, which is where the sexual revolution of the 1960s had a major impact on our society. To even this day, we're feeling the very effects of that revolution and continually to have this constant and progressive moral revolution in all of society. To the very fact now that there are those who want us to feel intimidated or ashamed or stigmatized for our biblical convictions. But we're not fringe. Most of the world agrees with us. It's still the historical, global, mainstream view of sex and gender. But now what is New Jersey's definition <laughs> of marriage and family? I don't know why they got such a big laugh, but I'm glad they did. It's everywhere I go, they get a big laugh. And people are wow, New Jersey, and there's one. Forget about it. So here's New, here's New Jersey's definition of marriage and family. The two shall become one. Unrelated adults. Lifelong covenant. The only thing they changed was the opposite sex part. And that was only changed in January of this year. January 2022. It was illegal for many years because of a court case decision, but it wasn't codified into state law until January of this year. But see, they didn't redefine all of marriage. This is why Webster Dictionary struggles to define it now. They simply just tweaked one part of the marriage definition, and therefore the whole thing now has collapsed. Because everyone now is looking at marriage and saying, what can we tweak? How can we tweak it? I want to tweak it. I want to change it. Most nations don't want to change it. And now Webster's saying, we no longer have a definition for it. But even New Jersey begin to codify into state law certain relationships, not all relationships. Let's have an honest conversation here. Not all relationships are codified into state law. So the very idea that we hear repeated and repeated and repeated about marriage equality, no one actually believes that. No one's actually advocating for that. I'm in the policy space for many years here in New Jersey. No one advocates for marriage equality. No one is believing that. Because true marriage equality, it would actually make every relationship codified into state law. There's many other relationships in this slide right here that are not codified in the state law. What about only two? Why not three? Why not four? I mean, this is their language here. If love is love, again, talking point, talking point, about to be collapsed right now, talking point. If love is love, and if one man loves two women, and those two women love that one man in polygamy, by that definition, that relationship is based in love, and you should be able to marry whoever you love, therefore, we should no longer limit it to just two. We must open up to three, four, or how many? What about unrelated? Unrelated. Follow me here. Now, in some states, you can marry your first cousin. You can. 
but you have to be old enough to where you can't conceive. I mean, this is the reality in some, some states. In New Jersey, you can't marry your first cousin. Even they updated this law, first cousin, not happening. No brother or sister. Let's just say a first cousin, though. In some states, you can marry your first cousin. In New Jersey, if a first cousin loves their first cousin, they can't get married because they're still related by state law. What about, now hear me out here, what about a mother marrying her son? So in New Mexico, it's a real case. In New Mexico, there's a 36-year-old mother who wants to marry her 19-year-old son. And there are psychiatrists that are backing up this institution, uh, this, this not institution, this relationship. Because the biological mother gave the son up for adoption when he was a baby. So therefore, there is no social bonding in those early years. So they say it's very natural as adults, they're sexually attracted to one another. And if she loves him, and if he loves her, and there's no clear definition of marriage because love is love, and therefore we need to codify it into state law, this is where we go. Because we change God's definition and God's description. What about adults? What about a 50-year-old man loved a 14-year-old girl? And a 14-year-old girl loved that 50-year-old man. Now, in some cultures, it's okay. Not in our culture, but in some. Are we going to codify that relationship as well? No, we won't. See, this is when the talking points face reality. And we begin to realize that we cannot be silenced or ashamed or stigmatized from our biblical convictions. The world needs to have an honest conversation about the family unit and how God defined it and described it and declared it in the book of Genesis. So what can we do about this? Again, three sessions into one, so I'm going to finish one session, go into another now. What can you do about what I just said? Well, develop a strong apologetic on the authority of Scripture, meaning this. You need to know what the Bible says, what you believe, and why you believe it, and how you can defend it. For the biggest challenge the body of Christ is going to face in the years ahead are going to be rooted in this issue. Rooted in this issue. That the word of God is now being described as harmful and hurtful because God wants society to prosper by the family unit that he has created. And then two, encourage teaching on biblical sexuality. Biblical sexuality, folks, goes a whole lot more than just the issues I discussed tonight about same-sex attraction. That's one issue of many. There's pornography, there's adultery, there's fornication, a lot of stuff that we don't have an honest conversation about. And so therefore, when individuals who struggle with their gender identity or their same-sex attraction, it's a struggle, and we love them, and they have a place here to worship and to grow in their faith. But when they struggle, but they only hear teaching on that part of sexuality, not the other part of sexuality that there's people wrestling with right now, that's where they feel ostracized as well sometimes. We need a wholesome teaching on biblical sexuality and the grace of God to forgive us, to cleanse us, to restore us, and to heal us in our journey with them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Next part, the biblical family dismantled by culture. The biblical family dismantled by culture. So the question that needs to be asked, is the biblical family 
the same as the nuclear family. A lot of times we'll see on media, reports, news sites, the nuclear family, the nuclear family, the nuclear family. Well, my friend, the nuclear family, as they define it and understand it, it is the biblical family. It is the mother-father family unit. It is the, the male-female family unit as described and defined by God. So when they're trying to critique and to dismantle the nuclear family, they're trying to make it look like the nuclear family is a new thing that only happened after World War II, that family units used to live together in large extended families living together, and this suburban individual single family home is a new phenomena, and that's the nuclear family in their eyes. But in reality is, even though families did live together for generations and centuries, extended family would live together, that nuclear family of a parent and their child, of a mother, father, and their children, was still a family unit separate from everybody else in that household. So let's say you're the aunt of a child and you want to go down to the school and get their records. Well, you can't get their records because you're not the legal guardian or the parent. That family unit of a parent and a child is supposed to be and has been very sacred. It's the nuclear family. It's the smallest family unit. And though that family unit used to live, and some still do, live with extended families, it doesn't change the fact that that nuclear family, the smallest family unit, is a reflection of the biblical family, the parent and their child. So when we see organizations or people or institutions attacking and critiquing the nuclear family in their definition, in their terminology, what they're really attacking and they're really critiquing is the biblical family, is the biblical family. That's why when in Ten Commandments, when God says, honor your father and mother, that's that biblical family relationship. In the book of Ephesians, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, wives, honor your husbands, uh, fathers, don't provoke your children, it's that biblical family unit, the, the nuclear family. It existed in the book of Genesis. So that being said, the nuclear family is the biblical family. Let's see why now they're saying this very, very good institution, this divine institution, God's first institution, why it's unfair. The nuclear family was a mistake. The Atlantic Magazine, 2020. Now, this is coming from some, you know, left-wing ideology here. They're saying in this article that the support system, that the families who are more financially well-off, which I'm not one of them, by the way, but the support system of a family financially well-off is so much better than those who don't have that same experience. And so therefore, it's a big mistake to keep building society on the nuclear family, on the biblical family. Because those who experience a biblical family will do well, and those who don't experience a biblical family will not do well. So we have to dismantle all the family units. For example, next slide. Andrew Churchland, Churlin, in this article, a sociologist from John Hopkins University, is, is recorded or quoted in saying this. It is a privileged Americans who are marrying and marrying helps them stay privileged. Isabel Sawhill, an economist, says, differences in family structures have increased income inequality by 25%. So since if you're born like I was into a single parent household, if you're born to poverty with a single parent, you have an 80% chance of, of staying in poverty. But if you're born into poverty with a mom and a dad, you have a 50% chance of getting out of poverty. So what the sociologists and academics have discovered is 
this very, very good institution called the biblical family, which they term the nuclear family. It's working so well for some kids, but some kids don't have it. So instead of helping them get into them, let's destroy the family for everybody. So we can kind of level the playing field in society. Because children who grow up in a biblical family, again, generalities here, they have higher graduation rates, less likely to commit crimes, less likely to fall into poverty. And again, if born into poverty, greater chance of climbing out of poverty. So instead of trying to fix the problem of the family unit being dismantled, of broken families really kind of being the majority of families now in our culture, instead of trying to fix the problem, instead of trying to make stronger, healthier families, they're saying, what can we do to dismantle that family unit completely and go into community parenting and state-run oversight of children? Because in the end of the day, in other words, they don't think your kids are your kids. They don't think your kids are your kids. Next slide. Melissa Harris-Perry, MSNBC. We always had a private notion of children. Your kid is yours. And totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion that these are our children. We have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Your kids are no longer your kids. That's where this left-wing ideology is taking us. Because when you disrespect and redefine the family unit, that mother-child, that dad-mom-child relationship that God instituted, something has to come and fill that void. And that, my friend, is a new structured society. That's this left-wing ideology we're seeing more and more in our country. This left-wing ideology that wants to criticize the structure, change the definition of marriage, remove the gender realities of the components that families historically consist of. So they can now reorganize and restructure society for their own utopian goals. Sean, what are you talking about? Here's some examples. Liberation Road, a, a self-proclaimed socialist and communist organization. This is on their website, on their 20-minute read of gender liberation. They say this, we are committed to the work of building a communist society of full and complete gender liberation. Gender liberation goes beyond mere equality, but requires a fundamental transformation of society. Now see, as a socialist organization, you would think they're more concerned about economic theory. You would think they're more concerned about equitable outcomes or economic justice or all their, their you know, poll-tested talking points. You would think they would want to be focused on that to persuade the public to move towards their way of structuring an economic society. But to do that, to restructure society, the socialists understand there's something they have to confront. And that, my friend, is the family unit. The family unit. Now, did they think of that all by themselves the last couple of years? Of course not. Who was the first one to come out to say we must abolish the family? Karl Marx. Karl Marx, the founder of Marxism or communism. It was in his manifesto that he said we must abolish the family. For there's one thing that's standing in the way of remaking society 
into a whole new world, and that is the biblical family. Before Israel, before the church, before any human government, the foundation of society was the biblical family. So they want to confront that family unit. Next slide from them. As well as existing social, political, and economic institutions, the full flourishing of humanity requires everyone to have the opportunity to self-determine their own gender, sexual identity and expression, to pursue consensual pleasure, and to have full sovereignty over their own body. Again, this is beyond the political or economic goals. Why are they even getting involved in this public debate is because they realize what's upholding society is the family unit. Another example is the Democratic Socialists of America. They said in their website on gender and sexuality and uh, justice, the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, fights for the, for the democratization of domestic and care work, political and social liberation for all genders, full bodily autonomy for all, and end the state recognition of the gender binary. Meaning there are no more men, there are no more women, there are only persons. Only persons. Because if male and female no longer exist, then moms and dads no longer exist. They're just persons. And if two persons can raise it, then 20 persons in the community can raise it. The mom and dad family unit, those components are no longer necessary because the state recognition no longer even recognizes male or female in their pursuit of economic justice and a reorganized society. Let's look at pop culture for a minute. What's going on in the, the media and on TV and everywhere else? Well, according to NPR, National Public Radio, 2021, here's an article they put out. After decades in the background, queer characters stepped to the front in kids' media. And what this article recorded is that more and more on TV for preschoolers, for two, three, and four-year-olds, that the characters are now more and more transgender at that very, very young age, really introducing a very complicated and confusing view of sexuality that's beyond these children's cognitive ability to understand and leading them down this pipeline of gender dysphoria. Because when you see people on TV, you want to become the person on TV or the person on your phone if you're doing TikTok. You know, when I was young, I watched wrestling. I wanted to be Hulk Hogan. Okay? Not anymore. But you want to be what you see on TV when you're a kid. So they're going younger and younger, introducing these themes, these identities to these young children. And what's the result so far? Well, according to Gallup Research, Here's a poll from 2021. You'll see most generations towards the bottom, including the traditionalists, kind of World War II people, the baby boomers, Generation X, all around 1%, 2%, 4% identifying as LGBT. Mostly the T is what's really surging in society. The millennials, it went from 7.8% five years ago to now 10.5%. It's a big increase. But among Generation Z, went from 10.5% in 2017 to over 20% in 2021. It's a surging right now in society. And according to Google, before 2015, they don't even rank the, the searches for transgenderism, gender identity, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. It's not even ranked 
No one really looked for it too much. But all of a sudden, it was introduced heavily in society, and now everyone's beginning to identify as that. And adults are acting irresponsible when they allow their children to be part of this social experiment. You know, studies show out of Sweden that kids who have gender dysphoria when they're teenagers, you just coach them and love them and help them through this time in life because we all go through phases as teenagers. I did too. If you knew my testimony, I went through a, a major phase of depression and, and suicide as a teenager. But if you coach them out of it, 90% will revert back to the biological birth gender in adulthood. But you put them on cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers at a young age, even if they want to come back, they can socially identify as their biological gender, but their bodies are forever scarred and harmed and mutilated. Now, if a 12-year-old child was to go into the parents and say, I want to have a vasectomy, I want to have a hysterectomy, I want to be sterilized at 12 years old, it's against most state laws. I'm not sure about New Jersey, but most states. It's against state laws to even allow your child to be sterilized. You can't even consent for your child to be sterilized. It's not legal for them to have that procedure. They have to be 18 to make that decision on their own. But if you go on puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, the side effect of that is sterilization. So when a child begins to be on those, put on those chemicals because society is coaching them and forcing them and threatening the parents if they don't, they're sterilizing kids. With any other situation, they wouldn't allow a kid to be sterilized on their own decision until they're 18. And even in the UK, in Britain, they realize we are making a huge mistake. So just a few months ago, they shut down their only uh, gender-affirming care clinic for youth in the UK. They said, no more of this. No more. Because they realize that these kids later on, they want to come out of it. But we've now ruined their bodies. The adults need to be more responsible and help these kids. Help before harm, man. Help before harm. Don't harm these kids. Help them. That's what we need to do in society. But they reach them so young because according to Barnard Research, someone's worldview is shaped by the time they're 13. So they don't want to wait until they're in high school to have these introductions of these very confusing and complicating sexual identities and gender dysphoria. They're going into preschool on TV. And we'll see in a moment even in school. So what can you do about this? Well, be very involved in your child's education. Be very involved in your child's education, not only in the curriculum, which we'll discuss in a minute, but in what they watch on social media, what they're hearing, have conversations with them. They need to hear from you and be aware of what you indirectly fund in culture. There's a great website called secondvote.org, secondvote.org, first vote who you vote for. Second vote is where you spend your money. And this organization ranks like Home Depot, Verizon, NBC Universal, many others, and it shows you where they're spending your money, your consumer money on issues and organizations that are dismantling the family and pushing this agenda on young kids. So our last session here is defending the biblical family disrupted by government. What's happening in the government when it comes to the biblical family? Well, let's start with New Jersey public schools. Um, 
So I've been dealing with this for over three years now in Trenton. I was there in January 2020 when they were actually putting out the learning standards. Um, there was 900 parents over three days testifying against the learning standards, uh, but they still did it during COVID. But there was some outrage in Trenton. They can't claim ignorance. They didn't know parents were objecting to these learning standards. But worse than that, the learning standards we see today, it's so controversial that we've been seeing so much in the media. When they put the standards out for public comment in January 2020, those sex acts and those sexual lessons weren't even in those, those proposed learning standards. No one even seen them. We testified on other learning standards. Then they got drawn back behind the scenes. They got redone behind the scenes. We'll see by who. And all of a sudden, they're pushed into schools. Otherwise, they never really wanted to know what parents wanted with the learning standards. So really four problems in New Jersey public schools. One is the what's been called the LGBT curriculum. Don't have time tonight to talk about that. It should be just history. Some school districts go above and beyond that. So I know Garden State Equality is a very big organization. They develop lessons that wants schools to actually teach kids that Spanish is a, is a discriminatory language. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Because Spanish, the, the gender lexicon of the nouns are male or female. All are A. And that reinforces the gender binary. So teaching kids, whenever possible, don't use those nouns. Put X or E at the end of everything. Changing the language, you can change the way you think. We don't have time for everything tonight. We only got 10 minutes left. Two is the diversity lessons, which means starting in kindergarten to introduce, again, the very complex and confusing gender dysphoria of transgenderism to kindergartners outside of health class. So if it's in health class, you can opt out of it. But the way the law was written, they can put it wherever they want to put it in the curriculum. It doesn't have to be in health class. You should advocate to your school district, only put these lessons in health class about transgenderism in kindergarten and then opt your child out of it. But the school district can, by state law, put it anywhere they want, outside of health class as well. And if that's the case, you can't opt out. Then, of course, is the sex ed standards. We won't go into detail tonight. Just go online and Google them. You'll see what's being taught this upcoming school year. The seventh and eighth graders would be illegal to be taught last year to 12th graders. It would have been. And if you had that conversation with your neighbor's daughter, you're going to jail. But if the, the, gov if the government employee does it in the school, it's okay. Then, of course, there's language arts books. We'll look at this one in a moment. These are books that have been on the shelves in public school libraries across America, including here in New Jersey, that are extremely sexually themed books, and I mean graphic illustrations of lesbian oral sex, graphic illustrations of all different types of, 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 of sex positions. I know, we're on comfortable, right? Imagine you're a 13-year-old right now. So if this makes you uncomfortable, imagine public school now. So when you don't want to say something, maybe now you realize why you should. Because this is how a groom just got. And this is what your 12 year is going to have to deal with this year. So as, as adults, we need to be responsible and sign up for them. Who's behind these new learning standards? We'll go to sexednj.org. This is their website, not mine, not a graphic website whatsoever, but it's a very corporate, clean, crisp website. These are the ones that help to develop these learning standards. Planned Parenthood, New Jersey Abortion Access Fund, New Jersey Family Planning League, Advocates for Youth. And they were very happy with the learning standards, but they said, 
We appreciate what New Jersey has done in these new learning standards, but the work is not yet done, they said in 2020 when they were adopted. New Jersey needs to go further. Because every five or six years, they revise the learning standards. So now they want to take some of the things we just discussed, take them even younger, and take away the New Jersey law that abstinence should be stressed in the classroom. By law, that's what's supposed to be stressed in health class, abstinence. So I would like to see, and parents, you can do this, we'll show you in a moment, is abstinence really being stressed? Because if they're not following that law, why are they following these laws? Because that's also a law on the book for decades in New Jersey. Abstinence must be stressed in the sex ed curriculum. And they realize that. They want to do away with that law. Here's the student guidelines for transgender um, policies in school districts. A student, this is coming from the NJDOE from Trenton. That a school district shall accept a student's asserted gender identity. Parental consent is not required. Further, a student need not meet any threshold diagnosis. So in other words, if your eight-year-old goes into school and wants to change your gender, they don't have to tell you about it. You don't have to consent for it. A matter of fact, that eight-year-old doesn't have to see a therapist, a psychiatrist, or a pediatrician. They just change their gender in school, and the school begins to call them by a new gender. They begin to socially um, uh, identify with the opposite gender, including bathrooms and locker rooms. And there's no affirmative duty for any school district personnel to notify a student's parent or guardian of the student's gender identity or expression. Who gave the NJDOE the authority to do this? Governor Chris Christie. Governor Chris Christie. Now, who wrote the guidelines? It was Governor Murphy's administration. But who gave him the authority to write the guidelines? Governor Chris Christie. I always say that because this is not a political message. This is a reflection of the world that we're living in and our convictions as Christians. Next slide. It goes on to say, school districts should consult their board attorney regarding this minor student's civil rights and protections under the, the New Jersey law against discrimination. So if a parent begins to object to the school doing this and, and pushing the parent out, then they say, get an attorney because the child has certain rights that the parent cannot um, uh, you know, overtake. We're gonna do what the parent says. And then they go on to say in the guidelines, if the parent continues to complain, uh, give the parent the New Jersey Department of Education's Child Abuse, Neglect, and Missing Children webpage. So if you do object to your six-year-old being a different gender, if you don't go along and affirm them and maybe put them on cross-sex hormones when they're teenagers, if you don't affirm that, then the NJDOE says we're going to refer you to our Child Abuse, Neglecting, Missing Children webpage really shaming the parent, putting fear in the parent, and not really being concerned about the child. I mean, think about it again. We do recognize the facts that those children struggling with their gender identity, they do have a higher depression rate. They do. So why are we trying to make more kids struggle with that? Why are we trying to create a pipeline like that poll to show, that survey, that surge in society? If we know they're struggling with emotional and mental issues because their gender, why are we creating TV shows and curriculum to cause more kids to stumble and struggle? We're adding to the emotional and mental crisis of this very young generation. And even the UK looks at us and say, we're post-Christian, we're secular, but we're saying no, because we know how dangerous it is. How about some of the language arts books? Next slide. This is one book among many 
this, this specific book is called This Book is Gay. Now listen, it doesn't matter if it's called This Book is Straight or This Book is Bi. It's not about what the book is called. It's the very fact that this book, my friend, I'm telling you, this book is very detailed descriptions of numerous, numerous sex acts on numerous types of people in numerous ways using numerous things. And it's accessible right now in public school in the library. For minors. For minors. It is obscene, and therefore, by definition, it is pornographic. Because pornographic, by law, is obscene material. So in North Jersey, one school district delegated to a group of parents as a committee, a delegated committee with authority for that school district, we want you to review certain books to approve them or disprove them to be in our school library. And this parent committee, under the delegation and the authority of the school board, says the book that's titled, This Book is Gay, should be removed from the school. And yet the school board says, we're not removing it. Because we all know it's just not one book. There's lots and lots and lots of books on those bookshelves right now. They remove one, they're going to remove many, many more. So they hold their ground on that one. The NJEA, the teachers union, said this about the situation. We are encouraged that some New Jersey school boards are standing up for children by resisting calls to ban books. First of all, they're not standing up for children. They're standing up against parents. The NJEA is standing up against parents because the parents are the ones who said, take the book out of the public library, of the school library. It could be in the county library. It could be in Amazon. It could be in Barnes & Noble. No one's banning a book. They're saying it shouldn't be taxpayer-funded for minors to access without their parents' knowledge in the school library because it's pornography. So what can you do about some of these situations? Well, here's three things for you to do. One, review the curriculum. You have the federal right to review curriculum. You have to be the parent. You can't be the grandparent because, remember, the, the nuclear family actually is a sacred institution. You have to be the parent or the legal guardian to, to review the curriculum. That's a federal law, Federal Education Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA. You have the right to review lesson plans. So look when they're teaching this material. And you have the right to observe classroom activities. You do. Now, I'm not saying your 10-year-old or 14-year-old wants you in the classroom. <laughs> but I'm saying you have the federal right to look at the lessons, to know when they're being taught, and even observe the lessons being taught in the classroom when that's happening. Again, it's not as easy as it sounds because, again, the family dynamic of your kids being in the class, but you do have federal rights. Real fast, here's some other parental rights stuff under assault in New Jersey. Next three or four minutes here. We can't go over every single bill that we've been working with, or I have in the past few years, but here's a sum it up. If New Jersey legislators had their way, some of them, not all, obviously, if they had their way, your child could do drugs, get an abortion, get vaccinated, become a different gender, and be secretly surveyed about their sexual practices and your beliefs without you ever knowing or giving your consent. Do drugs, get an abortion, get vaccinated, be a different gender, and be surveyed and probed about what they do and what you believe. And the school and the police and the government will never have to tell you a thing. These are literally real bills. Now, some are, are law. Some have just been sponsored. But the very fact that even some of these are being sponsored, whether or not they ever become law, is troubling enough. That there are legislators who think, mom and dad, your kids are not your kids. So last two slides then. The Equality Act, two minutes ago, most dangerous piece of legislation ever introduced at the federal level against the people of, of faith, any faith, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, the Equality Act. 
It would overturn the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, signed by President Bill Clinton. It would overturn the Defense of Marriage Act of 1996, signed by Bill Clinton. In 25 years, a lot has changed in this nation. It used to be bipartisan to support the definition of marriage. It was bipartisan to support the religious liberty of people of faith. And now, both sides are having issues with that. I mean, 47 House Republicans just voted to do away with the biblical family as a codified institution in our state law only. They want to begin to change those guardrails we looked at, that two unrelated adults, opposite sex, lifelong covenant, even they want to begin to change that. I say that because you cannot rely upon or lean upon our confidence in the political system of one party. This is not a political message. This is the word of God. This is the church of Jesus Christ. I want us to be firm in our convictions that what is yet to come, when parents are being stigmatized and shamed and pushed out of the way, when children are being confused and complicated about gender, biological, binary realities, and when legislation is being passed to silence the pulpit or to financially cripple the church, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. So what can you do about it? Go again. Wrap it up here. Know your parental rights. Defend your religious rights. And elect statesmen who will protect all your rights. Last slide. Quick wrap up here. What can we do about this? Because I know I probably alarmed you tonight. But again, I gave you action steps. Develop a strong apologetic on the authority of Scripture. Know how the Bible defines and describes the biblical family. Encourage teaching on biblical sexuality in the church. We need it. It'll be healthy for us. Two, in culture, become more involved in your child's education. Be more aware of where your money's going. And in government, as I just said, know your parental rights, defend your religious rights, and elect statesmen who will protect all your rights. Amen? Amen. Let's defend the biblical family. Thank you, guys. God bless. Please welcome Pastor Matt.